Radio brings you The Haunted Sea with host Scott Martis. This is Scott Martis with The Haunted Sea. Our special guest today is Andy McGrath. Our host, co-host Julie Wrench, could not make it due to scheduling conflicts. Hello, Andy. Hi, Scott. How you doing, buddy? Good. Do you want to tell the audience about your background well yeah sure um i'm uh i was a long time singer musician uh i'm actually my 31st year of that now and um you know like all musicians i had my other hobbies and one of them for was on 27 years now was cryptozoology i loved nessie and um sasquatch and living dinosaurs stories like the killian bembe and things like that and I always kept abreast of things, always kept a little folder of, of sightings and information as, as they happened, you know, in our country and other countries of the world. It just grew and grew and grew, and I never thought it would be something serious. Then uh, I hit 40 in 2016, and I'm working 50 hours a week in London, you know, commuting three hours a day. Got two children. Life is very busy and, you know, not very interesting. My wife says to me, or how about this monsters thing that you love all the time? <laughs> Why don't you write something about that? And I'd actually put something together for an American friend who um who challenged me to prove that it was much more than just Nessie, uh, uh, cryptozoologically speaking, just more than Nessie in this country. And so I'd put a little document together for him. And my wife said, well, why don't you do a blog or something? And I just started. I didn't even think it would be anything. And then it popped into my head that it would be a TV series. So I started writing a script and talking to some friends I knew at the time who were working in various programs. They said, well, it's a bit strange, a bit adventurous. But if you're going to do this, you should write a book first because you'll be more protected. And then I started writing the book. And that was Beast of Britain. You know, that's where it all started. And that's, well, I'm just about to release the second edition of it. And that came out in 2017, in October. So- and... And here we are, you know, still doing it, still researching and, You're and trying to make some headlines. You're planning on releasing a revised version of the first book or a second volume of new material? No, revised version. Now, the first one was my first ever attempt at writing a book, so you know, there were issues with it. There's there's one or two things in there since that I've, I've either changed my mind about or I've had to um, uh, correct little bits of information that weren't perhaps... Um, I wouldn't say they were wrong, but I, I know better now about some of the things. I've got a lot more research to put in there, so there's extra chapters, there's there's more pictures. I've been on more expeditions now. I was just really a researcher before. Now I've been out to a few different places, and 
there's just more to say. <laughs> so well, I'm hopefully going to bring that out always soon. makes the difference. Yes. It's, it's easy to be an armchair cryptozoologist, but to really get hands-on, you have to get out there and actually go to these places and look for these animals to get, you know, a, a good grounded perspective. Oh, definitely. I mean, that's definitely the case. And in the case of lake monster hunting, which is, I know that's your your primary domain, and I've done a little bit of that too. You know, when you get to the location and I've been to a few, and you look around, you start suddenly getting a better concept of the, you know, plausibility or implausibility of some of the sightings. You know, it starts to come home to you how difficult it is uh, just to get you know, very simple evidence that could uh, turn the tide on these um, types of cryptozoological phenomena. Yeah, my my experience has taught me that at this late date, the only way you're going to find these animals is by going underwater. However, you have to do that. That's where these animals are living, and that's where you're going to find them if they're there to find. I, I would agree with that, actually. Um, I mean, whatever their um, uh, physiological um, abilities are, they seem to be able to stay underwater or at least um, come to the surface to breathe, if they, if they do breathe, uh, for very quick periods of time and I would imagine that the times that they are seen it's just an error on their part you know that they've just come up and like all animals they've taken the decision or a particular specimen doesn't really feel that bothered by people and um, he or she or it is exhibiting itself and I think mostly especially in the case of lake monsters that they're very cautious animals they, they appear to be um, and, and that's Born out in you know, stories of them ducking underwater before boats appear, you know, they can hear that, or um, car doors slamming, and you know, suddenly the beast is gone and, and submerged. So they do seem to be very, very cautious, and that to me is definitely one of the biggest reasons why we're not finding them. Well, the general assumption is they're probably ambush predators that oh. are used to hiding and waiting on their prey. So if that is the case, they they Part of the way they live is by hiding, mm. being inconspicuous, waiting on their prey to come along. So that, that makes sense to me. Ties in together, you know. It, it, I mean, it certainly makes sense to me. I, I remember somebody mentioning to me that, um, that there were some sonar contacts in Lake Champlain, where whatever the object was was uh, seen to sort of uh, dig itself down into the bottom, into the mud. Or at yeah. least, um, you know, submerge them. I don't remember what particular instance that was or who recorded that, but it did seem to make sense. And suddenly, well, like, yeah, of course, you know, they, they go to the bottom, they get out of the way of, of the noise in the boats. And if you're any kind of aquatic animal, the noise that boats make, goodness, yeah, you know, that's enough to keep you, um, um, keep you away all day. And if that's what you want to avoid, well, you'll know when the boats are coming long before they get to you. So who's yeah. going to realistically see one of these creatures on a regular basis? Yeah. So you grew up in Wales, correct? I did. I did. I don't sound very Welsh. I don't know if you're familiar with the accent, but I don't. I don't have a Welsh accent. Uh, so we come from a sort of um, English Irish crossover family. My, my parents lived all their lives in Wales. 
Um, and I grew up there in the land of, uh, I mean, the, the Irish call us the drinking people, so that tells you something about the country. Have, um, you, uh, have you done any cryptozoology work in Wales? Only, uh, well, not, not exactly cryptozoology, but I, I've, most of the time that I was hunting or searching in Wales was for the big cats. Uh, and there was a, a sighting when I first actually became very, very interested in finding something. It was in 1999, and I was in a place called uh, Crimach in uh, the Preseli Mountains in West Wales. And I, I was dating a girl, and she had a, a house there. And um, it was the New Year's period, and we were all up to the Christmas. It was very cold outside. And her house, just to give you the scene, her neighbours were five miles away. That's the kind of area we're talking about. All hills and mountains and boggy land, and you know, there's no people about at all. The neighbors are five miles away, the post office is another three miles away, and that's close as far as she's concerned. So, a lot of people are up in this big house, and it's got a big garden area, big patio, big veranda. And one of the ladies has come up from London, she's a friend of this girl's mother's. Uh, she's a smoker, heavy smoker, so she's got to go out early in the morning and have a cigarette. There's no smoking in the house. Out she goes. It's 5, 6 a.m. in the morning. It's completely dark. She sits down as she lights a cigarette. She sees, maybe 10 feet away, a black panther, a melanistic leopard or whatever it was, just looking at her. And it, you know, they locked eyes for about 15 seconds and it turned and walked away. Now, she told us all about it the following morning. We went out looking but at the same time, the sister of my then girlfriend confessed that she'd seen a black panther chasing sheep around her friend's farm when she was riding off the mountain one day and become very scared. Now, she was very skeptical. And to me, these two sightings together from people had no concern with this uh, phenomenon at all. So, gosh, you know, maybe there's something here in Wales. So that's, and that, that was a real trigger point for me. But it's my only... Welsh hunting. I have been to Lake Bala, which is the home of um, Teggy, or Lynn uh, Teggid. Mm, but I've, um, that was when I was a child. I've never been there since finding stories, out that it's the haunt of a lake monster. I've heard stories about a place called Kinwinch Lake. Does that sound familiar? Doesn't sound familiar, actually. Is that in Wales? I believe so, yeah. Kinwinch. Uh, C-Y-N... W-Y-C-H, I think. Something like that. C-Y-N-W-I-N-Kinwich. Well, I don't well, have that. Probably how you would pronounce it. I'm not sure. Uh, well, there's um, Quetlin Lake, maybe. Um, I mean, in Wales, the, the lakes are very small. The, the, uh, Lynn uh, Tegid, or uh, Lake Bala, as it's known, is the biggest, and it's only... You know, 1.87 square miles. The area is very small. Close to the sea. Well, it connects to the River Dee, which actually empties out in the Dee estuary, uh, and uh, that's that's in the sea. So, um, and this is all on the west coast, facing Ireland. So there is, I think, it's a 12 or 30 mile journey. There are sluice gates and all different types of things to get through, but it's yeah. most of the journey is very, very rural. That, so That sounds kind of like the lakes in Connemara, which are not very big and not very deep. Mm. They're in close proximity to the sea, so the assumption is that these creatures in Connemara are coming in from the sea for brief visits. I, I think, I think it's uh, possible. 
I, I really do think it's possible, Scott. And I, I think a lot of these, um, I mean, well, a classic, um, a classic uh, example of this would be Loch Mora. I, I mean, the, the yeah. Loch Mora is quite short and it, it leads out of the sea. Now, there was like a hydro dam, but there's been a sighting of it, you know, climbing out of the river, across the, the, the shell bank, into the loch. By two brothers, um, you know, quite These some time back. Ones, I think Roland reported upon this. They made the painting. Yes, it's the painting. There's yeah, a painting. painting. That's yes. right. Yes, it's a great painting, and absolutely, it, it's also a really good example of of how it gets around. We we always omit the fact that these creatures are reported to be amphibious. Oh yeah, all the reports from yeah. the different lakes. There's a subset of amphibious reports. So whatever these creatures are. Mm. appear to be amphibious. I certainly do. I, I actually really enjoyed Roland's book recently, When Monsters Come Ashore. I thought that was a, a great idea. You know, to Very focus good book. On those particular, yeah, great book, and it's a specialized subject. You know, there aren't many sightings of Nessie well, and other I can shore. think of four or five from Lake Champlain. Yeah, so it, it happens. And there's reports like that from Okanagan Lake, too. And also for the Cadborosaurus. So. Uh-huh. Okay, now in Okanagan Lake, now that's, I, I would love to have your opinion on um, Okapogo. And uh, somebody tried to convince me the other day that Okapogo and Cadborosaurus are more or less the same kind of creature. Well, um, that's, that, that's what I tend to think, too. And I think uh-huh. that's probably... The creature that was found in the belly of a sperm whale back in 1937. Yeah, yeah. The Dayton Harbor carcass. I believe I remember that's that. probably a dead caddy or a juvenile, at least. So, yeah, I, I Ed Bousfield espoused the theory that the Ogopogos were landlocked caddies, and I tend to agree with him. Everybody doesn't feel that way, though. So, I mean, do you think it's this... Um this long, snaky, serpentine presentation that we see. Now, if you look at the, um, the scrimsil, um, uh, ones of um, the Lagerfjeld, um, yeah. um, yep. then that's a long, serpent-like creature again. But it, it, its presentation seems slightly different to the Ogopogo and, and to Caddy. Uh, but the, the morphology, you know, the, the body shape tends to be the same. We have... Um, a description of an animal like that here. Um, it's actually in the um, the Firth of Tay, uh, which is on the east coast of Scotland. Now, there's a Loch Tay and there's a River Tay that leads down to the Firth of Tay. There have been several sightings. And Where's one of the... the place called Carnoustie? It's supposed to be close to one of them. Hmm, I'm not sure where Carnoustie is. Because there was um, one of those... Pseudo-plesiosaur basking shark carcasses washed up there. Oh, you don't think perhaps that's uh, one of the uh, Orkney Isles sightings? Uh, of the, there well, were several washups there, actually. Yeah, well, the most famous, obviously, is the Stronza Beast. Yeah, I think that's also near the... That's the Orkney well documented, Isles. yeah. Yeah. But no, I don't think all these elongated carcasses are necessarily basking sharks. Well, no. Well, certainly are. The ones that were able to get samples of the skeleton proved conclusively that they were, but I don't believe all of them are, and I don't believe the 1937 caddy carcasses one because the head is too weird looking. Mm. Mm, it is strange. Yeah. I mean, the, for the, um, 
um, the Stronza Beast, there's several things that, that stand out as being kind of strange about it to me, actually. Now, the one was about the, the fine, fibrous hairs along the back that changed colour when they were um, seemed to have a luminous glow to them when they were brushed in the opposite direction. Um, well, that's something that's quite odd to me. Um, but then the six legs seems to me then like a description of fins and claspers, right? Yeah, exactly. That's what yeah. the, the extra set of of uh, appendages is, is believed to be is a set of claspers mm-hmm. from a male basking shark. Yeah. And the um, the fibers you're talking about were probably uh, dermal fibers from the skin. Yeah. Yeah, it's the glow. I think I find very strange about it. The, the idea that it had a luminescent glow when moved, and the description that the man gave it the animal wasn't in a in an extreme. Uh, well, it's you know it's a very old description, now, but it wasn't in an extreme form of decay. You know, only the tail part was missing, and the length of the animal, even uh, with the tail with the tail part missing, still is is longer yeah. than any recorded basking shark. So well, then we've got think, a mystery carcass that was longer than any recorded basking shark. They also think was they were mistaken mis- about the wing. Um, yeah. There were stories of giant great whites that allegedly got 36 and 37 feet mm-hmm. long, and then ichthyologists went back and re-studied the original material uh-huh. that is sitting in museums and figured out, no, this shark was about 18 feet long. So it may be a uh-huh. single case with the length of the strands of these. Well, I mean, I wouldn't dispute that personally myself, but it seems a little bit strange that that is the, um, that's the detail we have to say is a mistake to make everything else fit in. Yeah. You see, and that's one of these, um, uh, you're bending the facts to fit the skeptical view. Now, we weren't there. Um, we didn't see it. So, and the men who saw it, they weren't, um, they may have seen wash-ups before living or Orkney Isles, you know, it's it's very um, yeah. uh, sparsely populated. I'm sure there there have been things like that there, but um, you know, they they weren't <laughs> they weren't marine biologists. How would they know? Well, but, they have the vertebrae. You no, know, I mean the, the witnesses preserved in alcohol. Yeah, yeah. In, I think in Glasgow uh, or Edinburgh somewhere. Yeah, no, I think Yvonne Simpson. She wanted to, to get yep. permission to test that, but. She was she wasn't allowed to test it. They didn't want to remove it from the facility. I think it's at the yeah. National Library of Scotland. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of strange, really. Um, well, I think yeah. it's because the the you know the 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 specimens are so rare. I think was their concern, mm. which is a shame. You know, uh, a simple DNA test would have solved the matter, but but most of the evidence points that direction anyway. Mm. Well, I, I think that's, it's hard but to it, say. It would be nice to, to confirm it, though. I Why not? Just, but although, didn't they test the, um, uh, didn't they test the vertebrae that they had from the, um, the Amara carcass? And wasn't well, that? the only material that was brought back actually from the carcass were fibers from one of the flippers. Oh, really? Uh-huh. Yeah. Those were biochemically tested against samples of different types of shark 
thin uh, fibers, which they call serratotrichia. Uh-huh. And it was found to be close to the chemical makeup of the actino or serratotrichia fibers of a basking shark. So okay. in a lot of people's minds, that um, sort of proved to them that it was a mutilated basking shark. Okay. However, the, the, the fibers from the Zeomaru carcass were treated chemically to preserve them uh-huh. up by the ship. And the chemical preservative, which is a sort, sort of a form of bleach called sodium hypochlorite, that uh-huh. may have messed up the chemical result. So okay. there's even debate about that. So I have an open mind on the Zeomaru carcass. I think if they'd have brought back the cranium and some of the vertebrae, Mm. know exactly what it was well i think this similarity that that, that they're uh, making as well is it's it matched the elastidin from a basking shark yeah Uh, so it's fibers i'm talking about yeah yeah so uh, the amino acid analysis they did isn't it yeah well there wasn't an exact match but they were close so Uh it's mine that that cinched it but i've done a lot of research on that particular case yeah um and there are some fossil remains of fibers like that in the fins of marine reptiles. Really? Yeah. So I think there's enough there you could reopen the case and restudy it. But that's and that's a whole the, other kettle of fish, you know. And what about the sketches? What do you think about that? I mean, Michihiko well, Yano, he made some. I mean, he was the ship's biologist, marine biologist, and he original, made his original sketch didn't match the measurements that he actually made while it was on board the ship. Uh-huh. So there's a modified version based on his measurements that give the body of the animal a much more elongated body. Uh-huh. And one of the scientists that worked on the collected papers that was part of the conference of scientists that gathered in Japan uh-huh. to study the, all the evidence one of them was of the opinion that because the carcass was so elongated and the position of the rear appendages was in such a posterior position, he said, I don't know of any known type of fish that has rear appendages so far back on the body, uh-huh. including the basking shark. So he was one of the experts. Um, okay. I'm trying to think of his name. Um uh, that, that, its name is Yoshinori uh, Imaizumi. Is that the no, guy? no, no. That's one of the guys in Japan before the initial scientific. Oh, he's the director of yeah. the um, animal yeah. research in Tokyo. But he yeah, thought it was a plesiosaur. But now this other guy, uh-huh. um, he's the guy they interview on the Arthur C. Clarke. Okay. Uh, yeah, I think I know who you mean. Fujio Yasuda. That's his okay. name. Okay. Uh-huh. All right. So anyway, he said that based on the position of the appendages so far back on the body, he didn't think it matched any known species of fish. So he was one of the few scientists involved in the the real study of all the evidence that said he didn't think it was a, a fish or a basking shark. So there were a handful of the scientists that studied it that didn't go for the basking shark idea. Uh-huh. Um, in fact, there's a paleontologist, Yoshio Tomoda, 
that thought, no, I'm sorry, Akuo Obata was a specialist paleontologist that worked on plesiosaurs, said he thought it might have been an undescribed reptile, which he was not saying it was a plesiosaur. Okay. He was saying that the carcass could have been a reptile of some kind that they don't know about. So that's, well, as, that's, that's yeah. as positive toward a plesiosaur as it, as it ever got. So, you know, one of those maybes, a doubtful maybe, but the best thing we got. So. And yeah, I, I think that's what we don't think about sometimes. And I, uh, I mean, as, as laymen, uh, and I think this same thing occurred when, you know, Dr. Ryan's, uh, sorry, Robert Ryan's and, and his team of real hyper, you know, hyper achievers in the field of invention and, and professionalism. Uh, when they were there at Loch Ness producing their evidence, nobody really considered, you know, the standing of these people, you know, the professional standing, the kind of work they've been used to doing their lives and, and, and what their reputations were, um, at least when considering their evidence. I think it's the same in this case. Yeah, you know, some of these people commenting on the validity of that carcass, the Ziamara carcass, they're not, they're not just having a punt or a guess. These are, you know, highly qualified people qualified to make an opinion uh, yeah, like that. They and just I think happen to have made a very unpopular opinion. That's the thing. So once you make that un unpopular opinion, suddenly your credentials kind of count for nothing, right? Well, there's politics in science the same way there's politics in mm -hmm. every other field of human endeavor. I would agree with that. Um, what, what experience have you had with, the, um, uh, with people uh, being punished for not towing the official line? What have, what have you uh, observed or uh, what cases are you aware of like that? Well, you know, the, probably the, the, the one that comes to mind is the controversy over the uh, Nessie Flipper photos from 1972. Mm -hmm. That's very complex. All I can say is that a lot of people that were originally involved in analyzing that evidence stand by their original statements. Uh -huh. At least they did up until their death. It's very yeah. left alive now. Charlie Wyckoff's dead. Bob Ryan's is dead. The guy that did the original computer work on the flippers, uh, Gillespie, he's still uh -huh. he's a geoastrologist. Wow. College up in Oregon or Washington State, and he still stands by the original analysis. So, wow. you know, there are people out there that do support that evidence. However, they're, they're in the minority. Now, one of the things that interests me about Loch Ness, and having been there just three times now, um, and the recent ones, you know, was just to check out the, the location of the Ricky Phillips uh, Bicasaurus sighting. That's what they're calling it, isn't it? The, the Bicasaurus. Yeah. We've seen it near the River Oich. Um, what's about it, and I noticed this from the very first time I went there. Is you know when it's it's a narrow lake actually. It's only about a mile, mile and a half across in places, and it's um it's very long, but it's very narrow. Nothing like Lake Champlain, which looks like a sea in comparison to Loch Ness. Yeah. Um, but when the boats are when the boats are you know taking the passengers up and down the lock, and I was at the Fort Augustus side uh, recently, which is quite skinny. The boat wakes, they 
last for a long, long time uh, after the boats have left. I mean, two, three minutes sometimes. You can we still gotta see think these. They're, they're bouncing around the walls of the lake like a pool. Yeah, wall. yeah, they really so are. To this side and then bouncing to the other side. I liken Loch Ness to a wall of water. Mm. It's not that wide. It's long and skinny, but it's very deep. It's very like deep. a wall of water. The depth is just incredible. It is. And the current apparently moves in very odd ways at, at certain depths as well, which affects the top. And you know, yeah. and the wind hits the valley there and, and it, it comes through yeah. Great Glen Rift. And it actually makes the water move in very strange ways. I even yeah. noticed that several ducks wind shears from the distance. come down and hit the surface of the water and look like an animal move. It can. I mean, it would be very hard to see something just popping up very briefly. Yeah. And then you have a station lock nest, too, which is where the water stratifies into two different temperature layers uh -huh. and rubs up against each other yeah. and creates yeah. a giant underwater wave. Yeah. Eventually, yeah. can move stuff at the surface back and forth, can even move objects against the flow of current at the surface. Yeah. You could see a log moving against the tide. Yeah, why is because the wave underwater is moving in a different direction than the water at the surface is. I mean, don't get me wrong. When you're there, it doesn't look that chaotic all the time. I've been there under uh, several different weather conditions. And recently, when I was there, most recently, it was completely calm, apart from the third day when there was a lot of fog. But it was still relatively calm. The water was flat. That that you know that old expression, flat calm. And um, what I noticed was. In this particular type of water, even the movement of ducks from a distance left quite a sizable wake. Now, the impression I got from, from being at Loch Ness and staring at that water for so long on these occasions is that I would not actually count anything for myself as a sighting that was not incredibly clear, at least clear of the water in some respect where I could see some animal-like detail it's um you know these recent pictures you've got with um with the two nessie sightings one from the the webcam again which is just a splurge you know yeah uh, the distance and the other one that's in front you know it's several i don't know how what the distance is that it's uh, sitting in front of swans and it looks the same size as them but well, it's it's yeah it's one in of the, the foreground. Which, which one it is looks clearly like a bird so. yeah yeah you know, yeah, I, I know, I guess people are just so desperate for any kind of Nessie sighting these days. It depends as well. Sometimes it's a quick buck. I think, yeah. I think the papers pay about maybe just about 200 to 300 pounds for, you know, a picture. And papers yeah. like The Sun, The Star, and the uh, a few of the others, they will just print it regardless of what it, what it looks like. What are um, things that's happened at Loch Ness in recent years that I was impressed by was that dorsal fin looking object mm. now do you mean the one that won the prize um, that was seen uh, coming out of the, the canal or do you mean the, the flipper that was seen by the mother and son well it looks like it looks like almost like a dolphin's dorsal fin uh -huh. and the full uncropped pictures yes. stay out in the middle and you have to zoom in on it to see it. But once you zoom in on it, 
it really does look like a dorsal fin or a flipper or something. Yeah, no, I remember that. It has a sort of a white tinge on the end. Yes, it? that's the one I'm talking about. Yeah, no, the one you mean. Actually, no, I'm just no, I've got it. I think I'm just scrolling through Gary Campbell's site now, just to. Okay, uh, 2nd November 2017, Dr. Knight and her son from the north of England picture what appears to be a fin or similar. 11.25am from a cruise boat on the loch. They didn't realise that they'd snapped anything until they were going through the holiday pictures. And it looks like... It does also look like a, like a little crest of a wave as well, though. Yeah. And well, the white tinge at the end could, you know, could be mistaken. And I mean, that could be the tell. Well, I think way. some people have suggested too it could be a piece of wood debris too. Mm -hmm. yeah, so. mm -hmm. I mean, most of the pictures, apart from Ricky Phillips' recent picture and the um, the Jolene picture, a uh, Jolene Lynn picture from 2016, which definitely shows something of in the distance there. Um, there aren't many good, clear pictures, you know. Um, not in recent years. No. Not in recent years, no. I, mean, I think this Ricky Phillips picture, if it's real, would be probably the best picture we've had in Well, it looks... Forever. It looks like an animal's head. Yeah. It could be a piece of wood debris. I just don't know. Uh, yeah. It looks birdish. It does look birdish. But yeah. the, the white ring that looks like a ring around the eye... I was able to find a picture of a water monitor lizard. I saw that. Yes. Yeah. And I also was able to find <clears throat> a few representation pictures of plesiosaur heads uh -huh. that bore some resemblance to it. Not exactly, but so, uh -huh. you know, who knows? I, I, I don't really have... Um, I don't really have a lot of red flags with him. I mean, the main red flag is that he took the picture on Instagram with the you know, the pinch and, and Zoom uh, because he didn't have room on his old phone. Now, we've all been there. You know, he's yeah, not a I've researcher. had problems like that before. Yeah. I've been out, out in the middle of the lake and the battery go dead on my camera. Exactly. And I'm just screwed, you know, because I forgot to charge it. Yeah, and he's only using his phone to take all of his pictures. Um, well, so that's what he's got. He's got his whole bank there. Now, he's a, quite a well-known military author. does quite well. You know, a military historian. Uh, he's got a few books out. Seems to be doing quite well. Now, that doesn't mean Steve that he's Felton, beyond faking something. Steve Feltham recently, a couple of days ago, posted some information about that Phillips is oh, really? going out on a boat with tourists doing some kind of a tour thing so oh really oh yeah well, i don't know so he was I mean, I, that doesn't that doesn't uh, necessarily reflect bad on the guy i'm just i definitely that anyway. as a possible the reason, motivation but. yeah the reason he was actually there at fort augustus where i spent a few days is because they, they have um they come up from edinburgh in different places these little chinese tourist uh buses they drop the tourists off they take the boat up the loch he normally waits for them until they come back and takes them around a bit. So he obviously has some side job where he's doing a bit of tourism work. That's, oh, yeah. Everybody's got to make a living somehow. Got to make a living. But yeah. I don't think that the boat they would be going on would be the cruise Loch Ness, um, I, I believe. Anyway. Um, Seems like I recall in Steve's post 
He called the boat the Nessie Hunter. Is supposedly the name of the boat. I think that's the name of the individual vessel. It's got a big, sort of messy. Um, I think it was in my video recently, actually, the little one I just posted with, with a few clips. Now that's the, oh, the where the Caledonia. The picture uh, was taken was near the mouth of the River Oik. Is that yeah. right? Oik. Yeah, that's right. Now that, in fact, is allegedly, according to Terry Phillips, exactly, exactly where the the sighting took place. Now that part there is a you can see there's a bit of a drop off back into the lock there, it gets deep again. And allegedly this is where he saw this thing and, and snapped the picture. You know, it's all like all of these um sightings, you know, people start pulling you to bits and asking you strange questions and before you know you your story's going in three different directions. Yeah. I don't feel really anything I didn't even really feel that he wanted to know much about it afterwards because a lot of people were contacting him, me and and Roland had a nice chat with him, I think. And a few other people, I, if I was in his position, I'd probably think, oh, goodness, yeah, what have I done here? Let's let's just cool the fire and, and get away from this thing. Well, um, yeah, people feel like they're under a microscope. And, you know, yeah. it makes people cautious about coming forward with possibly important information and observations because they know what a circus will happen once they tell somebody. And that's something I say to people all the time is, um, what do you think? As, as far as hoaxes and fakers are concerned, of course there are some. Uh, but what do you think happens to these people when they go public? Nothing good happens. They might get a, a tiny payment when they first go public. But, you know, as you probably saw with Sandra Mancy and, and other people as well, it's just more, normally you should get like a lifetime of hassle if the picture's really good. Yep. Like Sandra, <laughs> I think she was. I was, she, I was friends with her. I knew her personally. I know that. Yeah, I know that. And, um, you know, I, I saw a few of those clips with you guys together, and I, I often wondered, seeing her in interviews, you know, she's kept the same story all this time. Yep. You've got people saying that it was just a bit of wood coming up and, you know, a duck or whatever. Well, you know, we can't go back in a time machine no. and prove one way or the other. All we can say is that it looks like this. Yeah. You know, it's subjected to some people. It looks like a piece of wood. Yeah. That just happens to be shaped like a plesiosaur or a giant snake. Yeah. To other people, myself included, it looks like an animal. So it's a subjective thing, you know? Yeah. Seems to. Now, what do you think in regards to that with the Ricky Phillips photo? You did some, um, you did a little bit of sort of uh, lightning of that photo, and I could make out a bit of an eye. You know, in well, the arch, there. do you it see looks that? Like an eye, and it looks like it's got almost a bird beak. Yeah, yeah. Reminds me a lot of photographs I've seen of swimming emus. Uh huh. Which is a long-necked bird, kind of like an ostrich. Yeah, yeah. That lives in uh, Australia. Australia, so. yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I can guarantee uh, that there are no emus <laughs> in Florida. Well, you know, it's possible too that. The object might be a lot smaller than yes. you assume, and it could be some type of common water bird that we just don't recognize from the picture. So this I, is the thing I, I looked for while I was there. So I, I stayed in that spot, and I visited it several times over three days. They had a very small type of dive, diving bird there with a short neck. They had lots of common duck smellards, you know, the, the, with the green heads and the brown females. Nests. 
I believe. Dead the, the, the ducks, maybe an osprey. Are there ospreys at Walk I haven't seen any ospreys. I'm not saying there aren't any, but I've I've never observed any. I didn't even see any geese. Not to say that there weren't any, but um, it doesn't look see. like a goose or a duck. No, it's kind of got kind of a turkeyish looking head and a bumpy neck at the back there. Yeah. looks at. But I've seen. Neck. I've seen lots of wood debris that look like monsters, so it's possible it yeah. could be a piece of wood, but I don't know. Look, I mean, let's talk about the area of Loch Ness. The area has form as far as hoaxing goes, right? <laughs> it does. Mm -hmm. And it's well known that if you want to sell a picture of the Loch Ness Monster, you know, whatever you're coming up with, some object in the water, that somebody's going to buy it and publish it. So, you know, it, it does add an extra level of uh, credulity to any sightings, especially very uh, blatant pictures that you might well, see. Of course, well, you have to investigate the character. That's the uh, reason for Sagan's dictum. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. I agree with that. I do really, really agree with that. And I, I think uh, I, I recently saw Jeff Meldrum's uh, conference on Paddy, you know, 50 years of Paddy. And one of the points he made was, you know, this has never been disproven, and yet this evidence, the clearest evidence we've ever had is still disputed. Anything below this as a level of evidence is no evidence at all, in the sense of it can't be submitted, you know, as yep. as something we can examine. We need something that's um, uh, a lot clearer, a lot better, a lot more visual than this. It, it yeah. does confuse me as to why we can't get a good capture of Loch Ness Monster. You know, 250,000 people a year plus go and put their, their cameras. Lasted 15, 20 seconds tops. Yes. yeah. And I didn't have a camera with me. You know, it was there, and then it was gone before I had time to even breathe, you know? And that's you saw the, the back, is that right? Yeah, I saw what I think was a big... Weatherback, turtleish looking back, and possibly a flipper of some uh -huh. kind. Oh, what what color was this? Probably, well, a garbage bag color, uh, greenish black. Uh -huh. You can imagine a weatherback turtle without spots. Yeah. Kind of what this looked like. Like a kind of iridescent black with a, this feeling of yeah, green. Well, a garbage bag color. I got black you. with a, a tinge of green to it. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I'm with you. I, I think that's it's amazing to have a sighting. I've always always wanted one. When I was at Le Champlain in uh, September, I was <laughs> desperate to get a sighting. I don't think I took my eyes off the border for five days. Um, it was it was an extraordinary area. I mean, you're so lucky to have lived around there for so long. It's a beautiful oh, bit of the country. Oh, beautiful place, oh. absolutely. The winters are Look, terrible, though. I assume that. I don't yeah. miss those. Mm. So, tell us about your investigations into Bonassi. Okay, well, Bonassi was a bit of a new one for me. The, the sightings... Uh, so, um, Bonassi is, is a reputed plesiosaur-like monster supposed to live in Lake Windermere in Cumbria. That's in the northwest of England. And that district is called the Lake District. Most of England's natural lakes are actually in Cumbria. You know, most of the other huger bodies of water are all in Scotland, the lochs and things like that. So this 
main lake, the largest of these lakes, um, Lake Windermere, is uh, now home reputedly to a monster called Bonessi. Now, the sightings seem to have picked up with about 2006 when they, they introduced uh, a speed a speedboat limit on the lake. Apparently people were tearing around there. And I was there last year to film a little um, like teaser trailer or pilot for my, my TV series idea, Visa Britain. And um, there's a lot of pleasure boating around the lake. You can hire these little boats and people are, some of them are, are water skiing or occasionally they're water skiing. It's a beautiful area covering this similar to Loch Ness's mountainous you know, kind of valleys and peaks and troughs. It has a, a river that leads to the sea, the River Leven. And at the top, it has the River Rothe, which um, goes into a bit of a, a trout farm. And most of the sightings have been in this northern end near the River Rothe, where I'm assuming the trout are coming into, you know, into the deeper water and getting snapped up by these creatures, if they are there. Um, there's been quite a few pictures. I think Steve I've Burnett was... Four, four photographs. Uh-huh. You've probably noticed the, the is it the, the humps taken by Tom Pickles as yeah. he was kayaking in 2011? Yeah, almost like tires. Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah. There's now, the I mean, one photograph, though, that looks like a typical Nessie with the hump back and the neck standing up out of the water. Yeah. yeah that one looks a little eh, questionable, but I don't know. I wasn't there. Well, this that other, one's a very. The other photographs, the other three are, are very plausible, though. You know. You mean the the submerged photographs? Uh, yeah. There's the Matt Benefield uh, photograph from 2014, which seems to be a rather large object moving just above the the, the water. Um, then we have the um, the the vicar, which I vicar Colin Honor, his wife. They they captured one in uh, 2012 November. Again, it's sort of a, a long creature just above the surface of the water. Um, well, the I one think, guy that had a sighting was a geologist, right? That's right. That's Matt Benefield. He's a petrophysicist. Yeah, yeah. petrophysicist. So he was adds, just that adds credibility to his observations. Yeah. And again, in the north of the lake, that's where you know he saw it. Now, obviously, he was taking a whole bunch of pictures. He didn't see it when he took it again. He noticed uh, the object in the water when he was flicking through the photos back at home. But you mentioned the one that was a bit meh, the Ellie Williams photo, which exactly. was actually taken uh, by a time-lapse camera. And she was just there to capture the change in the seasons. She was working for a magazine, autographer magazine. And she she was just there for a brief period to get some video through time-lapse you know, photographs showing the seasonal changes over a day. She puts the camera in at 7 a.m., collects it around 3 p.m., and downloads the pictures to her phone. So I think it's every minute it went off. And you know, the minutes before the creature appears and the minutes afterwards, there's nobody in view anywhere. It can't be. It, it, nobody could have faked it unless she faked mm. it herself. But then her background, autographer magazine, well, what that got to do with a, a Nessie-like creature? And that's the only story like that they ever ran. Yeah. Nothing else to do with it. So the isolation there, you know, if I go into somebody's web page and... Perhaps. They have like a hundred videos about dogs and cat shows, and then they've got one is this Nessie photo. And I'm thinking, okay, it doesn't seem to be part of your MO. I'll have a look yeah. at this. Well, one thing I noticed when I was looking into this, preparing for this program, is that there's another lake somewhere near Windermere 
where some guy got a photograph back in 1971. That's right. Yes, that's right. Quarter of a century or more before this yeah. current Lake Windermere business got started. So you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Now, his name was Rudolf Stefanis, and he was um, hiking with a, a friend of his, Gunnar Jacobson, 1973, the summer. The lake is called Bassenthwaite Lake. And what they captured seems to be, uh, from a distance anyway, some large creature with its, you know, with its neck sticking out of the water. It could be some kind of bird from a distance, but the distance at which the picture is taken seems to indicate that the object would be large. That's all I can really say about it. He, um, how did he describe it? He just said he saw something that made him excited and intrigued. So it was something strange swimming in the lake, and it ducked below the surface and reappeared some distance away. And he was impressed by the speed that the animal moved. He said he was never able to find out what it was. And he's been ridiculed for publishing the picture. Or at least he was ridiculed at the time. At least he was brave enough to come forward with it, you know? Mm. But um, you must find this with, with your witnesses sometimes, that um, sometimes when people have an extraordinary sighting, uh, regardless of the ridicule they receive, what's seen can't be unseen. So they find themselves in the position, like Sandra perhaps, of not being able to deny it, no matter how bad it gets. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's an interesting psychological angle so, to this. I've met a lot of people that are very sincere that had what they believe is an extraordinary experience, and they want to know what these things are, and they encourage people like me and you to try to find out. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think those people are being honest. Yeah, I do too. There's a, at the bottom line, there's an unsolved mystery that deserves further scrutiny, you know, regardless of, of whether there's an animal behind it or not. There's something weird going on that deserves to be investigated. Bottom and line, it, period. I, I think that's, that's the baseline of it. Now, I'm wondering what your opinion is on that. I know you're interviewing me, but I'm just curious just to you know, sort of feel this out with you. On corroboration, worldwide corroboration of other sightings. Clearly, you're a person that's uh, investigated lake monster sightings around the world. You've investigated these reports, or they come to you. Um, do you think there's, and I, I personally do, but do you think there's a great deal of corroboration in um, behavior, in um, physiognomy, in, in the types of um, sightings, the, the duration? You know what, what the animals look well, like, what color they are. You know, you have one subset. All the lake monsters aren't described as being the same. Yeah. But there's a subset. You keep coming back to the same description of big humpback, mm. long neck standing up out of the water with a snake-looking or horse-looking head. Uh -huh. You know, just you know, as simple as you look around to the animals that we know that exists now and the animals that have existed in the prehistoric past and you kind of keep coming back to long-necked plesiosaurs uh -huh. which tend to suggest the possibility that maybe they all didn't die out and there's still some around living in the ocean 
and there might be some isolated landlocked populations that came in from the sea into places like Lake Champlain and Loch Ness uh-huh. that have managed to adapt to fresh water and hang on. Now, I would I would agree with that wholly. Um, and I think the reason people find that difficult to stomach is because of the type of presentation of animal that we're talking about. You know, when you talk about something like the coelacanth, well, we know, or at least scientists believe that it, it hung on for what, 65 million years without being found in the fossil record and just appeared exactly the same. We've got hundreds of them, right? We've even found new populations recently. Yep. Now, that's just as good as finding a living dinosaur. There's I know aren't dinosaurs, but... There's it's, probably populations of coelacanths out there now that we don't know about that exactly. will eventually be discovered. Exactly. They might be living off the coast of Florida here and we don't. They might mm. be in the Gulf of Mexico. Yes. They just yes. recently found a new type of killer whale, an air-breathing yes. mammal. That was near, was that near Argentina? Um, Chile, I believe. Chile, sorry, yeah, so in the southern seas, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, even in a country like Britain, and this is the thing I'm trying to talk about again and again and again in the book, even for us, the the guys, the British guys who live here, you know, our our perception is that this country is inhabited, every single patch of grass is taken up and concreted over, and there's no... Land out there that nobody's walking or nobody's using or touching it, and it's not true. You know, it's just not true, and it's um, it's an amazing, amazing um land. It's a small land. It's it's only like nine point is it nine point eight or nine point six? I've got the figure here somewhere. A tiny percentage of our actual land mass has urban sprawl. A tiny, tiny percentage. Now I'm scrolling now because I've got so much information in front of me. I always get this figure wrong. One second, we'll get it for you. Where is it? Where is it? Uh, okay, there you go. Okay. So, okay. In actuality, only 6.8%, sorry, of Britain consists of urban sprawl. 6.8% of the entire country. And you know, there's horticultural areas, but that's only that's only a quarter um, of the land that's used for horticultural areas. There's not tons of people living in them. It's still countryside. And the rest is, you know, rough grazing and woods and hills, and it's really, really under-inhabited. And, and when you get out there, especially to a place like Scotland, I was in recently walking around, you don't see anybody for miles sometimes. Well, there's they're, wild deer running all over Scotland, the red deer. Oh, they're all over the place. Here too, yeah. and sorry, we've got so many of them. Um, you also did some research into the so-called Thames River monster, correct? Yeah, that was my <laughs> that was my um, that was probably I think the catalyst, the real catalyst to start start making sure this book happened because um, this is the spring of 2016. I've, I've been working, I've been in London since 2009. This time. And, about 10 years and I'd been commuting every day to London I, I would get the train into to Waterloo and I would cross the bridge across the River Thames and walk in so every day I'm walking across the, that part of the Thames and uh, suddenly in 2016 this video comes out by a guy called Penplate on YouTube and he's on there's a cable car 
called the Emirates Cable Car that goes, uh, I think it's far, somewhere near the O2 Centre. It's from the O2 Centre across to the other side of London and, and back. Anyway, it's, it's a nice view. You're about 200 feet up. And he spots something in the water. You know, three large humps. The creature must be huge. I can't determine the length just by looking at the picture, but it's it's a large creature. This thing, you know, raises out of the water, then travels a little distance, submerges, and you see a, a kind of black shadow of, of the creature beneath uh, the waves off towards and think, that's crazy, what's what's that thing? That's not a whale. Occasionally we've had whales stuck in the terms, but they're not bumpy. They don't have three arms. That's a weird thing. So it's strange. So I get on the water in the boat, you know, looking about, investigating things, I leave it alone. Then there's a second sighting, filmed again. This is taken, this time, from some kind of uh, pleasure cruise. And uh, it looks like it's near the um, Canary Wharf, the Docklands area at this point. And in this clip, you can hear some friends talking about a beautiful rainbow somewhere in the sky. And one of the party, obviously, has become distracted. And is just focusing on this creature that's swimming. Huge creature swimming in an S shape. Well, yeah, I saw it. Well, you, one place you can clearly see a hump. Uh huh. Uh huh. Not away, definitely. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And it actually swims into an, an S kind of shape, and you can see a sort of a big bump near the, the front. So that's you know, that's the second sighting. Unfortunately, I, I was on a holiday after that. I couldn't come back and look again. And there was a third recorded sighting from the there's a, like a speedboat tour that goes along the Thames and sort of zips around there. I love it. And there's a place called Docklands, which is a big uh, financial area, the uh, Canary or sorry, a big financial area. And um, you know, all the major banks are there. It's, it's a, still a deep part of the Thames. And you see this huge hump in the corner of the uh, the frame of this camera come out of the water, you know, about 100 feet away from this boat. And just amazing. You know, um, they even interviewed the crow of the, the speedboat to say, what do you think about this? They were <laughs> all pretty shaken up that something that large might be around them when they're, you know, when they're zipping through the water. And they're all quite stand. Whatever this thing is, it disappears. Things come into the Thames sometimes and move out. We've got a, a beluga whale living there right now, actually, in the Thames. He's yep. been there since last September. I read about that. And they found, Benny. 2013, they found a dead whale's catfish, too. Yeah, well, the, the, I'll get on to the whales in a minute. I, I've done some research into that. Now, I, I believe I've seen a whale's catfish in my section of the Thames, near Surrey, um, in a dock, in, in um, you know, a small dock next to the river, actually. But there was a fourth sighting of this creature, possibly the same creature, which was in the, um, the stretch of water between Portsmouth and the Isle of Wight, called the Solent. And this animal was just resting, you know, three-humped animal resting on the surface of the water at sunset, and uh, a lady there um, just quickly snapped the picture. You know, she saw this thing and thought, my goodness, look at that. And Joe Wilde, I think her name was. That was the last sighting this type of creature in the Thames. I've been calling it Thamsin, the, the River Thames monster, simply because Thamsin seems like such a London kind of name for a girl. <laughs> so, There's a so. sighting in the Thames from a place called the Black Deep Estuary. Yeah, that's right. 1929, Black somewhere, 1930, yeah. somewhere in there. It's Black. a military, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, anyway, the guy that, that saw it, he saw a neck and a head stand about the water. It was a, was a military guy named Commander Michael. 
Yeah. And he also saw, later on, he saw the Loch Ness Monster, saw a home of Nessie at Loch Ness. Uh, he did also claim to see that. He, that was actually uh, Captain Hasselfoot. Um, yeah, Hasselfoot. Yeah, and he was, uh, yeah. um, they saw that um, in 1923 uh, aboard the go. HMS Kellett. Yeah, yeah. Right. and the Thames Estuary is a much bigger, much deeper, and that, that area of Black Deep, it's been a sort of, or well, was for a long time, a restricted. I just got my names area. mixed up there, but that, yeah, no, that's the um, exciting I'm referring to. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's a great one, and that was, you know, that was, um, that was quite significant. Now, there was one that's probably a fake. There was a picture of a long serpentine creature traveling through the Thames from a, allegedly from a helicopter in 99 that was seen by 36 different people, but uh, it was one of these things that was, I forget the new site now, it's um, it's one of these very fakey type of things. Now, I've never like been Weekly able to... World News or something, huh? best news or something online and strange that's never quite plausible. I included it in my report, but I was never really um, set <laughs> on, yeah. on the, uh, the veracity of it. The one that doesn't seem to really fit the whole thing. Uh, there's been other strange things in the Thames. I received a, a first-hand report about the, um, the what we've been calling the jelly squid of London Bridge, that is one of the very early things that I, I wrote about. And I was contacted by a guy called uh, Laws. I won't give his last name. I want to keep it private. Uh, him and his brother were crossing London Bridge, April 2014. And that crosses the Thames. And just bear in mind, you, this is a super busy bridge full of people and cars crossing. Lots of crowds all day and all night. Always busy. And um, they sort of looked over the side of the bridge and they saw creature, the greyish, featureless, slightly elongated square head, it looked like, with lots of green tentacles, it looked like tassels at the bottom, about five feet long, as thick as a man's body, and it was just sort of swimming against the current and submerging and servicing, and it finally just disappeared. Um, but they were convinced it was a biological creature, and told me, at least anyway, that uh, a lot of other people on the bridge were standing around with them, looking at it. Now, never made the news, you know, it never got anywhere else. But the guy at the time, he drew me a pretty decent picture of it and walked me through it. Could that have I been the barbels of a sturgeon? Oh, no, I mean, this was big. This was big. Hey, I'm and talking about the tentacles. The tentacles, even. I mean, he's talking about it. His picture shows clearly his sketch. A very sort of squarish body with very long Looks tassels. Looks like a cephalopod. Kind of like a cephalopod uh, with a sort of jellyfish-like tentacles or tassels, basically. Um, which is where the, the nickname of the jelly squid came up. Jelly squid of London Bridge is kind of its tagline, I suppose, to make it a bit well, more attractive. You know, it was only a few years ago that a giant squid Swam into a harbor in Japan and then swam back out. You know, I remember that. that are, so. Yeah, I remember that. So water, water in most of the towns relatively brackish. No, no. I mean, it's it can get more brackish towards the estuary, but not in the the main. I don't think it is in the main part of the Thames. Uh, in, in London Bridge, I think it would be getting fresher and fresher. Um, in the estuary, there's you know we have seals living in the Thames estuary. This does go out to the sea. 
this beluga whale, Benny, the beluga whale, as I described, is, is living quite comfortably there near Gravesend in Kent at the moment. Well, the um, belugas have a high freshwater tolerance. I mean, that that section as well would be perfect for it as well. This is this is close to the inlet to the sea, so I think that would definitely be brackish, if not possibly saltwater. I'll, I'll have to check that detail, actually. Um, it's an interesting river, you know. It, it's a very clear outlet to the sea. It has lots of marine life, and it actually is the cleanest uh, river of any city, I think, in Europe at the moment as well. So it's yeah. it's yeah, it's become very very clean. It's got a lot of shipping too. So this is have you um have you been to the lakes in southern England with the Welsh catfish? You know? I haven't. I haven't. Now, in regards to the catfish, this was something that was introduced about 130 years ago. I think it was the Duke of Bedford introduced the whales they're not native to the uk you know um i think that uh, there was another resurgence as well of their um popularity or being stocked in certain lakes in the 90s when people started bringing them over too so they're not i don't think they're terribly common there but they are spreading out you know slowly but 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 surely i don't Um, believe the ones in england are as big as the ones over in italy and france spain yeah. The really big ones that they catch, which are like eight, nine, nine feet long, I think the ones probably in southern England don't get that big. But I mean, they you could be catch- talking four or five feet, maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. 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 Maybe. They need, but again, um, high temperatures to breed, too. Yes. They won't breed unless it's uh, 20 degrees Celsius or 68 degrees Fahrenheit, I think, is their. Breeding temperature, so uh-huh. <laughs> that would well, tend, tend to say that there probably isn't a breeding population of whales, catfish, and Loch Ness, if there's any in there at all. So, I mean, there could be. There's there's actually a fantastic uh, website online called the Catfish Conservation uh, uk, and they've actually got a map of uh, catfish waters in the UK, and you can click on the the, the map. And the area of the country that you want to look at, and they'll they'll give you information on that particular that particular area. Oh, cool! Basically. Yeah, so that, I mean that's a that's a, a really good one, and uh, they're they're trying to basically, um, or they were trying to campaign to make the catfish a native species and not uh, an invasive species anymore, uh, just to give it the same protection. I think. Uh, and 130 years, I think that's a reasonable enough time. You know, we've got gray oh, yeah, squirrels, but Canada geese, we're not getting rid of those guys. They're they're here to stay. Um, and I think let me just look at Scotland actually. Yeah, see if I can find anything. Have you um, have you been to Cornwall to look into the Morgaur? Yes, I went to um, I only went to St Ives actually. Um, and it was for it was for job related reasons, but um, I did have a, a good scour along the coast and, and the beaches there. Now, one of the interesting things about St. Ives, uh, and I was thinking about it at the same time that we had that um, that alleged Loch Ness three humped seal photo. Remember that? Alleged? Oh yes, that was yeah. pathetic. I knew that Awful. was seal the minute yeah. I looked at it. Awful. Uh, I think. It did a little uh, blog and they called Hoaxed by Seals <laughs> at yeah. the time. And anyway, um, what I noticed in Cornwall was a lot of surfing there. And they, 
I've got a lot of seals in the docks that are just begging for food from fishermen, like dogs almost, and swimming underneath the surface. And gray seals, those are the seals that they're in harbor seals. And even I stood up on the, the there's a little wall that overlooks one of the main beaches, and it's about 100 feet to the, the water, and then maybe maybe the surface around another sort of 30, 40 feet. Even at that distance, and beneath the surface of the waves, it was very clear to me that what I was looking at was a seal. At no point did I get the impression I could mistake this for some kind of monster. And they're conspicuous. They really stand out. So it just reminded me being there in Cornwall and having a little sort of off-the-cuff monster hunt on, on the day I wasn't um, interviewing, that some of these monster imposters that we place yeah, or we put in place for yeah, like monsters like Nessie or Bonessio or whoever else don't really stand up to the challenge of what they they claim to be. Yeah. Well, you know, it's a fact seals get into Loch Ness occasionally. They do. But they're it's... always recognized for what they are. They so, really are. And it used yeah. to happen like Champlain too before the dams and canals were built. And yeah. people who immediately what they were you know that's right that's right and by the way talking about other monster imposters there should be no european sturgeon in any british rivers or lakes because they, they haven't been here since the 19th century um there is you know an effort to sort of uh, there's a campaign to rewild them but it's it's mainly perceived at the moment that it would take too much uh um, infrastructure changes of uh, dams and weirs and and too much uh, uh, effort to uh, clean up some of these rivers that they would inhabit. So yeah, they have to have a special kind of substrate to 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 spawn, mm, like they, the spawn pebbles on the, on the the bottom with clear water. Uh huh. Uh huh. But also, they they wouldn't be able to get to those ancestral homes because of the weirs and the other things in exactly. in the way. There's actually um, a law here. I think that um, if you do catch if you were to catch or for some reason a, a european sturgeon you'd have to report it to the environment agency uh take a photograph with a distinctive area landmark in the photo and return it to the water unharmed or retain it and offer it to the queen because sturgeon well, yeah, are royal fish royal fish I've, I've heard that yeah They're royal fish so like swans you know that they belong to the queen too so yeah well is there anything else you want to add yeah, sure. I mean, there's in the UK, it's not just lake monsters and loch monsters. Um, there are lots of sightings around the coasts as well. And uh, there were a few that I found very, very interesting. Now, there's a, a great author you'd probably be familiar with, uh, Paul Harrison, who wrote uh, the, the, the very... Encyclopedia of the Loch Ness Monster, yes. You know that one? No, it's his other book. I see serpents and lake monsters at the British Isle. Ah. Um, and that came out in 2001 or two, so it's, it's not really up to date at the moment. But he had a great just list of every country in the UK, and uh, within about maybe within a hundred years or so, all of the sea and monster and, and lake monster sightings. And he had some, and it really sort of turned me on to looking into. Um, sightings of the uh, the beast of barmouth now that's um just off of wales barmouth is part of the the Mordach, uh, estuary in north wales and they had sightings there since 1805 
um, and onwards, several sightings. And the, the creature seems to be like a crocodile-like creature, or this has been claimed to, to look a bit like a crocodile walking uh, sometimes along the riverbanks near the estuary. They've seen huge footprints in the sand, uh, almost as large as an elephant's, that seem to be saucer-shaped with, with claws coming off them. They've had a, a beach sighting in 1975. Six harmless schoolgirls, they saw a big, big creature. Oh, well, I'm familiar with that, yeah. I've got yeah. a drawing of it in uh, Joe Zarzinski's champ book. Ah, yeah, exactly. Yep. Well, there was a very um, modern-day sighting in, in 2016 uh, also. Was it 2016, in fact? No, I don't think it was. Yes, yes, I think it was 2016. Uh, this was by a, a pensioner called Mohammed Tachler, and he was actually quite a few miles away from Barmouth, but it's in the same kind of general area, uh, living along the uh, estuary of the River Aran, or Avon Aran, it's called. And he photographed a creature that appeared to be, you know, um, have a large round body with a sort of short neck and a crocodilian face and a double serrated spine oh. going down the back of this creature. And he was, you know, he was shocked by what he saw. It was just swimming about in the estuary there, uh, uh, almost inside the, you know, the boundaries of the village, the town that he was living in. Did it bear any resemblance to a leatherback turtle? No, I don't think so. Now, there's a picture online that you can find, but it's very, you know, it's not very clear to this review it's um you can make out that the spines for sure and something that looks like a sort of a squarish head that, that that's so it looks like maybe the spines of an iguana going down the back yeah like a like a double serrated uh cuirass oh huh. yeah yeah one down each side it looks kind of rounded but a lot of the sightings of this creature's life have been with this egg-shaped head uh, or with something with you know, big green eyes, a short neck with a square crocodilian face. It seems well, I know in the be... drawing that the girls did, you mm. see like toes on the face. Yes, yes, exactly. Now, all of the sightings, the ones in Barmouth as well, describe it as having toes and footprints have been seen that mm. would seem to uh, confirm that as well. Yeah, I had an idea, and it was just something I threw out at the time of Anothosaurus. Or, or something like that, you know, um, yeah. inhabiting the area. I always say places, or why not stretch it a bit further? But uh, it, a few descriptions turn me on to that, but I really don't have any additional proof apart from um, it seemed like a, a pleasant, you know, pleasant substitute for Nessie at the time. Yeah, well, I am familiar with the one drawing, but I didn't know there was an extensive history in that area. Hmm. Okay, going back to the 1800s. Oh, cool. Yeah. 1805. There's one old story of Morgauer of seeing this plesiosaur thing come up and, and actually eat a conger eel. Yes. From like 1877, somewhere in there. Uh, there. I think that was by a diver. Do I have that one in front of me? Morgauer. I mean, we were talking about uh, dog shields, weren't we, earlier? Oh, that um, yes, get me yes. started. Oh gosh, you know it's um, what an embarrassment. I know, but it. I mean, the the lake monster stuff is not the worst of it, really. He's really a a strange and disturbing character. Well, he's also uh, been involved in the Owl Man thing too. 
Yeah, just I mean, who is collecting? Allegedly, by his own admission, he's collecting sightings. Now, um, he's actually um, now you remember the head of the CFC, John Downs, wrote the book, The Alman and Others, and they're very close friends. Now, obviously, I'm not trying to no, make any. Um, yeah. But I don't think Jonathan endorses his Nazi pictures. No, oh, I doubt it. I seriously doubt it. But he had a sighting um, at Three Lakes of Killarney, I believe, in 2009 that he filmed. There's, remember there's the, a video on YouTube. Yes, that's the one. I and I remember being very angry at the time that nobody walked down to the <laughs> Now, I know that, that John isn't very well, you know. He probably couldn't make that walk, but it, there were people with him, so. Mm-hmm. I was very confused. No. Yep, I have a well, as the video is playing, you can almost hear me shouting in the background, walk down! <laughs> yeah. You know, it's just one of those things. Maybe you don't think about it at the time. Well, speaking it's hard of, to say. Speaking of eels, you know, conger eels, yes. I'm sure are probably responsible for some oh, yeah, it could be. monster reports because we're talking about eels. The British oh, conger can get eight feet long and as big around as a telephone pole. Oh, and they are scary ants. Oh, they're they're frightening. Now I've got I've had some really close encounters with conger eels as a child, <laughs> which sounds like a strange thing. But um, my father and uncle they were really obsessed with fishing, and um, in Wales where we live, you know, we we're just on the coast there. And as children, myself and uh, my older sister and some of my cousins, older cousins. They would take us night fishing on the sea in, like, um, I think they had an old military um, speedboat dinghy, like a cross, a very thick, you know, like like a, like a lifeboat kind of dinghy that they had there and a little engine on it. And they would take us out with life jackets on, of course, night fishing for conger eels <laughs> off the coast of Wales. And um, we pulled, I think we well, the one we pulled in one night seemed to me like it was huge, but it might have only been about three, three and a half feet long. Very aggressive. It thrashed around in the boat nonstop, trying to bite everybody it could get near until finally the, one of my uncles picked it up and, and chucked it back in the sea. It was frantic. And several encounters like that, they're unpleasant creatures. <laughs> yeah. Now I, I know you you referenced uh, when we were having a conversation before the interview the um, the 2013 incident I think uh, was near Portsmouth with somebody a diver being bitten on the face. Oh yeah, it's horrible looking pictures where they oh. chunk out of his face. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It just and, and there's <laughs> I I don't say this with any serious seriousness of course, but there's just no need for them on God's earth. <laughs> They're just horrible animals. Yeah. Eels are very, you know, eels can be very aggressive. Fish. They taste good, though. I've ate them. They do. Yeah, they do taste good. Yeah. They certainly do. Um, have you heard of the, the Sultan Cove chameleon? No. So this is something I wrote about. This is a sighting that took place in 2010 uh, in, in a, a place uh, which is not too far. Uh, really um, from Cornwall, a bit further on, uh, in Paynton. And it's a place called Salt and Cove. Now, it's described as a, as a place you saw like creature that was seen hunting a school of mackerel just 30 yards offshore by the locals for quite a long time, you know, for around about half an hour. 
Uh, it was about three meters long, with a rounded greenish brown hump, large flippers, and a small reptile head on a two and a half foot long neck. Uh, about the size and girth of a sea lion. That's how it was described, but with these, you know, very particular features. And the fish apparently were so scared, these, these mackerel fish, that they were beaching themselves to get away from the creature. Uh, several people photographed it. Uh, and one of the eyewitnesses, Graham Oxley, um, he is walking the circle on the beach. He was amazed by the creature. He went down to, to, to see it. He said he thought it was a turtle. Then he saw a black tongue, which was more rounded than the turtle shell, and its head kept popping out of the water every five minutes. He said it looked over some some weeds in about four foot of water for around half an hour. He said that's when he realized it wasn't a turtle, and what he thought was the shell was actually the creature's back, and it seemed to change color like a chameleon. When it was in the shade, it was a black color, and then when it swam off, it changed to a greenish-brown color. It seemed to camouflage itself. These are his words. And he said, that's probably why not, uh, why uh, there aren't many sightings of them. Not many people have spotted them. It well, was standing. You know, when scientists try to explain to people <clears throat> what a plesiosaur was like, hmm. the usual common frames of reference are either a sea turtle or a sea lion. Hmm. So hmm. a plesiosaur, a living one, would probably look somewhere in between or very similar to both of those. Uh huh. Uh-huh. I, I think that that's all, a good. That point. all kind of adds up, you know. And there's, but there's just one, one tiny detail I want to add on to this view, and this might make some sense to you. But this arched back that we hear described sometimes, the, the changing shape of the back. He said it was standing, feeding on the weeds, and had its back arched. So his back was arched when it was on the weeds, and then when it moved off, or when it was swimming before that, it wasn't arched; it was flat. So this um. Strange you know, spinal flexibility seems to be a feature sometimes. You know, we see humps moving, don't we? We see well, sometimes a you know, very you know, arched back or a very rounded back. It seems they to know constantly. that there were fossil types of plesiosaurs that lived in cold water. Uh-huh. It would have had to have some kind of adaptation to deal with the cold water temperature. Probably something along the lines of the leatherback turtle. Uh-huh. Leatherback turtle has a layer. A, a blubber underneath its skin on its back. Uh-huh. It's possible that, that this changing shape on the back could be layers of fat. Maybe. I think and that's... We've actually found fossilized blubber from a plesiosaur from Mexico, and they've also found fossilized blubber for an ichthyosaur. And that the ichthyosaur is aware of, yeah. yeah. Well, they found a plesiosaur in Mexico, too. See, I think that's amazing, Scott. So already, with the research that you've done, we're starting some of the objections to them perhaps living in a cold body of water like Loch Ness or well, yeah, you know, I mean, areas I of North Atlantic enough, are dropping away. I try to stay on top of the paleontology literature on plesiosaurs and try to apply it to the knowledge we have about these lake monsters. I mean, you've uh-huh. got... One pile of data over here about plesiosaurs and another pile of data about these monsters. And right now, you know, you can only make tenuous connections, but there are connections. It's really amazing. It yeah. really, really is amazing. And I, I think the more that we find out, you know, the greater uh, or the more intact um, specimens we find in the fossil record, the more that we will 
we will eventually know and be able to apply to the, some well, of the um, characteristics that have been observed. What we got to do is figure out how to get to the bottom of these lakes mm. and find remains of these lake monsters and then do the comparison. The thing is, though, you know, it's surely it's, it's only for a lack of financial and scientific interest that we can't do this because oh, I know. Yeah. You know, I've been watching what do I watch recently? I watched the um Ocean Challenger Deep or whatever it was called with James Cameron. It's on Netflix at the moment. Yeah, he's going down to the bottom of the Mariana trench. We can get to the bottom of Loch Ness. Absolutely. We can do it. We can it's do only it. Only seven hundred and fifty feet. Yes. We can do it. We just don't have anybody. We don't James if Mr Cameron if it, right they're listening. Money. <laughs> The money, the time, and the technology all together at one time. That's really all it is. You know, I wanted to put, um, I don't even know if this technology exists actually, but I wanted um, <laughs> motion-activated, submersible um, you know, cameras, little drones in the lock at the river mouths because there's so many river mouth sightings all the way through the lock, and I sort of correlated that to the fish movement. There's an outfit called Kongsberg. Mm-hmm. That's been using programmable underwater drones at Loch Ness for years. Really? Yeah. I had no idea. They're the ones. They're the ones that found the model that's been sitting there half a century. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. That's how they found it. So they could need to get that those those um drones and sit them at those river mouths. There's several yeah. so many river mouth sightings. They've did... been um mapping the sides and the bottom of Loch Ness with the same technology. Come on, guys. Get them there. Do a bit of a vigil. Yeah. <laughs> it all costs money. Talk to Adrian Shine. He's the guy that's sort oh. of half in charge of it. So. I, I don't know. I mean, I've never spoken to Adrian. I'd, I'd like to speak to him, actually. But, um, well, I know it, Dick Rayner, but I don't know Adrian Shine. No. He doesn't seem to, to get involved with much of the, the chatter, really, does he? Um, I guess, you know, 50 years later, he might be tired of it, I, I, yeah. I'm, I'm guessing. Um. I was under the impression that he was pretty much kind of hard left now, you know, on the, um, on that there is no Loch Ness monster. Um, I would like to personally, Scott, I would like to visit, I mean, there's 31,000 blah, blah, blah. I don't know many, how many lochs and lochens in Scotland, most of which are uninhabited and, and, and barely ever visited. I would like to stretch out a little and, and maybe find some, um, uh, you know, some obscure, isolated locks that have some access to the sea, and just go and, and do a couple of vigils there. You know, maybe if there's a little salmon migration going on, hunker down by one of the river openings, and and you know, just get the cameras ready. Because I think, Loch you know, Ness somebody is you should example. hook up with, you should hook up with Gary Cunningham and Rob Corns. They're doing work over at the lakes in Connemara. You mentioned them. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to speak to them. Yeah, they just recently wrote a really good book called The Seal Serpent. Oh, yes. Okay. And what, what do you think about that theory, about it being some kind of seal? Well, it's possible, but, you know, uh-huh. you've, got, you've got, it's got to be an air breather with that uh-huh. because mammals can't absorb oxygen from the water like a reptile can. That's right. That's right. And... The pattern of behavior is odd for a seal because most seals tend to gather in groups and stay on the beach a lot. So. Uh-huh. And they bark like dogs, too. But I don't know. I could be mistaken. So. Do you think that sometimes um, 
these stretches of um, logic, and I don't mean to be disrespectful in saying that, that, that we make to try to fit this plesiosaur-shaped creature into you know, into the mode of other animals. Do you think this is because it's kind of untenable to us because of our philosophy that these things should not exist anymore? Therefore, it's more plausible well, to say it's a type of seal we never discovered or, you know, it's a mudskipper or it's um, an yeah. inherited memory from the time of the dinosaurs or, or whatever. And it's called yeah, well, uh, Sagamite. It's, it's very complicated. Mm -hmm. One reason the paleontologists are so resistant to the idea of a surviving plesiosaur is the fact that they have a known fossil record for 130 million years, found everywhere all over the world in large numbers, and then 65, 66 million years ago, they virtually vanish. Uh -huh. And that's why they're so resistant to the idea is that up until that point for this 130 million years, they have a very representative fossil record, uh -huh. specimens, all kinds of stuff, you know. And then after that, there's virtually nothing. But, but it's it seems... not completely nothing because no. I'm into this. There are fragmentary pieces of plesiosaurs past the presumed extinction date. Uh -huh. That some of these fossils are as young as the Pleistocene ice ages, which would have been around the same time that Loch Ness and Lake Champlain were open to the sea. The problem is, most of the geologists believe that these out-of-place fossils are what they call reworked fossils. What that is, is when uh, a fossil gets knocked out of its original sediments. Yeah, redeposited. And redeposited in younger yeah. sediments. But isn't this very convenient? I mean... There's two points I have about that, really. The first point is the fossil record just represents what we have currently found. Yes. And it's placed together in an order that, that um, you know, fits the, the science as we know it about what we've currently found. We made essentially an assumption about that because that's what we have to work on. So when we find more things like we are now, you mentioned the ichthyosaur with blubber and the, the plesiosaur with blubber, then more things come to light. Okay, now we know this about this creature and that about yeah. this creature. They've been finding amazing things in recent mm. years. They've found remains of what they believe are a heart and a kidney and an mm. eye on a mosasaur specimen. Wow. Yeah. That is amazing. I remember the, um, <clears throat> the story about the, the fossilized dinosaur hearts that that was um yeah was the t-rex or something or well they found um, bone marrow from a t-rex and what about the is it it's not a hadrosaur it looks like an anglosaur i forget the actual technical name for this dinosaur this particular species but skin fossilized skin and uh, you know horns they and found uh, fossilized uh, mosasaur skin and uh, plesiosaur skin and ichthyosaur skin and all sorts of things. Outlines of tail fins preserved in the fossil organ. Some of this stuff goes back a hundred years or longer. Flip around uh, lines, all sorts of stuff. No, I've, I've heard about that as well. And what I was thinking about was not a sea monster at all, actually, but was the nodosaur that was found oh, recently. Yes. Yes, it, yes, yes, I know what you're talking about now. Yeah. Amazingly well-preserved skin. Inside skin, yeah, yeah. I mean, that was fantastic. That's got to be 
so possibly the best preserved. What I wish they find is the soft tissue around the head of a plesiosaur. Mm. I don't know if it had any kind of snorkels or oh yeah that nature. The, the old sexual dimorphism argument again. Yeah. Is that, um, um, do, do you find with, with the the Champlain Lake Champlain sightings that there, any of those types of things are reported, like snorkels or um, um, head crests or there's or there's anything? a there's a handful. <clears throat> I know of one report from 1971 talking yeah. about snorkels or horns. Or frail or something like that. Yeah, there's some old reports from like the 1870s, 1880s uh-huh. that describe. Well, actually, there's one from like the 1870s, and then there's one from the 1960s that seem to describe some kind of structure that looks like a bathing cap on top of the creature's head. Oh yes, uh huh. So you I mean that's that. kind of a vague description and hard to interpret, but mm. like a skin flap. Yeah, some reptiles do have, you know, structures like that on their head, so. That's very interesting. Yeah. I, I just, um, you know, it would seem to be, I mean, when I say places, so I mean, I'm obviously referring to that family of creatures. It would seem that the Loch Ness, the you know, creature of Loch Ness, from the places or like descriptions that we have and the creature of Lake Champlain seem to be yep. a different type. Uh, well, I myself, most of the reports that I'm familiar with, the really impressive ones from Lake Champlain seem to be describing a creature virtually identical to Champ, uh, to Nessie. Oh, yes? I think I, it's the same animal. But I think uh, they probably the, came uh, North Atlantic and one group went uh, east and the other group went west. I mean, it, it makes perfect sense to me with the, the, the Nessie type, the way that described, seems to be very... Um, uniform but I, I was wondering whether the neck length I, I always thought there was a, a lot more neck length described with the, the Champlain monster or is that more of the Dennis Hall's theory about the Tanistrophius I believe that's probably it. Dennis Hall's uh-huh. if anything I, more than anything I think he's muddied the waters with his own uh-huh. theories he did a really good job of cataloging the sightings that other people made uh-huh. credit for that but I think his own claims are somewhat questionable. Okay, okay, and, and I, I mean, you're comfortable talking about that? It's um, well, yeah, of course I'm. Yeah, talking. no, that's no, that's fine because this is the thing. I think um, that's just my opinion. I disagree with the guy, but yeah, no, know. that's fine. And I, I, I think that's be wrong, you know. But I'm saying it the way I, I see it. And, and what's your opinion about um, you, know, you did a, like a long sojourn, a long monster hunt based at the lake from uh, you were there from 1994 until when? 2011. Okay, so it's quite recent. And I still go back every summer, so I'm still. You go back it. every summer, but you were when you were based at the lake. I'm assuming you were there, you know, daily or at least a couple of times a week or something like that. Yeah, looking well, champ. What we used to do a lot was there's a ferry. It goes all the way across the lake. It takes an hour to get across and then an hour to get back. I used to go out on the ferry boat quite a bit. Oh, lovely. You know, so, and it was the widest part of the lake and one of the deepest parts of the lake. It's uh, 11 miles. One and did you, um, did you have any particular um, location that was your normal vigil, your normal haunt to go and look for the beast? 
Well, like I said, I'd, I'd, I'd go on that ferry, and then there was a bluff at a place called Red Rocks Park. You climb up on that bluff, and you could see a good chunk of the lake, and I used to go up there on that bluff with a video camera and my binoculars. Awesome. For years. I mean, it's, it's... The, only, the only time I had a sighting, per se, was in 1994. And I've never seen anything on the water surface since then that made me think it was a monster. But on the Japanese expedition 2016, we got a video of some kind of appendage coming up trying to take a bait. And then in 2017, me and Will got that oddball sonar contact. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. So that's, that's the best things I've been able to come up with on my own. So this, I mean, this to me, I think, I've always wondered to myself, would I be able to, to survive uh, a sit-in, you know, like a years and years and years of looking for the same monster in the same location? And one of the things that really stood out to me about some of the tales of um, Le Champlain and, you know, the controversies of past researchers and, and things like that and present ones was that... It, it tends to, it doesn't pay a lot. So the life kind of stops while you do the research. If somebody isn't funding it, you know, it can really drive your life down and it can eat you alive. You know, this kind of yeah. obsession and research, if you don't have something else going on in the background, yeah, I think it can be a, you know, it can be a dangerous, like anything, a dangerous obsession. That the, yeah, it's not healthy to obsess over anything. No. Period. No, Absolutely. It's good to be able to, you know, to step back, take a breath, and, you know, take a break and, you know, get your stuff together, you know? Yeah. This is it. Well, you you, say you, you live in Florida now, you know, the home of monsters. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to get some winter Florida monster research going on, but I, I haven't been able to get any partners so far. There's um, I mean, it's my one fear when I was I was I told you I was there recently in Florida on my way over to the U.S. I uh, my plane was forced to land because of yeah. the storm, and so I was in Orlando. I think I was in Orlando. I don't even remember. And um, so we uh, they kind of put me up in a Holiday Inn hotel somewhere, and it had a great big pool at the back and, and some nice deck chairs and hammocks next to what they called a pond, which was looked to me like a big natural lake at the back and there were these beware of alligator signs everywhere and i remember saying to the hotel owner um so we just go and sit down there by the lake what if an alligator comes out she said well start running or get up a tree or or whatever you know you have to get away pretty quickly there were families sitting around and everything and i said oh, what about a fence <laughs> like how yeah. about a fence the best and, place to see an alligator is on a golf course. They love golf courses. I don't know why they do. Why is that? I don't know. Strange. If you go to a golf course with a pond, you're bound to see one. Yeah. That oh, it's the, it's the pond then. They just get to go and sit in the, that little bit of water by themselves, and you know there must be a lot of territorial struggle. There are so many alligators in the, in the state. Yeah. Well, the big ones run the smaller ones off mm. or eat them. Gosh. Yeah. Do you, and do you live near any body of water where you are at the moment? 
Well, yeah, I'm about 20 miles from the ocean. No, I mean, uh, do you yeah, live in swamps and lakes where there are alligators? Are, are there uh, are yeah, these animals I mean, close not, to you? Not across the street, but I can no. plenty of places I can go close by. Oh, okay, it's not like you have to sort of be careful when you're putting out the, the, the garbage. Oh, <laughs> no. no, thank God. No, but I, don't, I, think it's, I don't think I could live like that. No, me neither. Me neither. I think it's a crazy here, There are places around here near bodies of water. You couldn't pay me to go at night. <laughs> it's just too dangerous. That's what I think as well. The, the, the difficulties of, of hunting for, um, you know, the skunk ape out there near the glades or even giant pythons or whatever you're looking for is... The main problems with that is that you might find them or other things along the way, like alligators primarily, I'm guessing. But there's some yeah. pretty big snakes there too, right? Well, yeah, absolutely. Cottonmouths and copperheads and rattlesnakes and all yeah. sorts of nasty, creepy crawlies, poisonous <laughs> spiders, released lizards. There are monitor lizards running around South Florida. Gosh. So you never know. It's um. It sounds like a, well. It was a beautiful state. I I actually did think it looked very beautiful, and the the weather was lovely. Um, yeah, I I prefer living in a colder climate, but my wife hates the cold. So okay, now, I'm really mad. I like the warm. My wife is from a very hot country, and I'm um, I'm from Wales. From she's from Israel. Ah, okay. Yeah, so hot and dry. Cause it gets humid too. Yeah. But it's very desertish. Yeah, I mean, there's some lovely green places there, but it's a, uh, I think at 38, 39 sometimes in the winter. Yeah, you guys um, ever go go over there for a visit? All the time. I, I due cool. to go there in a, a few weeks actually. So I go there oh, once a year, hmm. sometimes once every two years, three or four weeks. And family, yeah. see the family. The children yeah. have dual nationalities, so we we go back and visit everybody. But it's it's a surprising. And a uh, pleasant place, and actually, you know, quite a remarkable place. And I, I had all these ideas about it before I first went. Are there went. any um, cryptids reported from Israel? No, I mean, there was kind of, I think there was some sort of Sea of Galilee monster reported in the 70s at some point, but I think it was just rubbish. Ah. It just, you know what? I find a lot of these hot, dry places, they're not good cryptid locales. No, I mean, it barely has any water as well. The Sea of Galilee is the only body of natural water in the entire country. Then there's the Mediterranean. Now, I knew a girl over there called uh, Canaris, or I knew her through somebody else. She actually had uh, a sighting when she was uh, in the Sinai in Egypt uh, in the uh, early noughties. And her and her friends were on the beach facing the Red Sea. And um, it was nighttime, and they yeah, had probably had a little fire, and they saw, and they thought it was like a Nessie-like creature, a huge, and it was, uh, as you went onto the beach, into the water, it was kind of a drop-off, you know, uh, 10 feet out or something like that, into the water. And they saw a huge creature hulk itself up onto, uh, and by huge, it doesn't mean like a seal, like twice, you know, three times yeah. that time. Um, well, you know, there's uh, a debate about the Leviathan from the Bible possibly being yes. kind of Oh, Mosasaur or something, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and also you've got some um, little uh, hieroglyphics that are plesiosaur shaped. Oh, sorry, 
there's a lot of debate about what they really yeah. are. Some people think they might be turtles, but they definitely look like plesiosaurs in shape. Wouldn't surprise me, but they definitely don't have any sort of Bigfoot or any kind of weird flying cryptids there. It's it's pretty sparse along those lines to be honest you. Turkey is great for that kind of stuff. You've got the Lake Fan Monster and, and a bunch of other things. Well, Turkey. yeah, yeah. But you've also, in the Nile River, besides big crocodiles, you've also got really large soft-shell turtles that get the size yeah, yeah. of a sea turtle. Well, they have those same soft-shell turtles with the sort of pointed noses. In um, in Israel, I saw a bunch of them. I have some pictures, actually, from the Alexandra River. They were about... I'd say they must have been about maybe four feet long by two foot across. Reasonable yeah. size. I mean, that's big for a turtle, for a freshwater turtle. Yeah, no, <clears throat> very, very big. People f- fed them actually, and um, these little river rats—I forget what they're called now. It looks a bit like a capybara. Um, oh. Would come swimming along and feed with these turtles, and the catfish would also come up to the surface. So they've got these three different types of animals kind of sitting next to one another, eating, you know, lettuce and all kinds of things that people have thrown in for them. Oh. It's an interesting place, but it's not. The, the wonderful thing about the UK is uh, the skyline with the different types of weather. You know, it can be very cloudy and stormy, you get great sunsets and skylines. And it's green and beautiful and wet and hilly everywhere. Their country over there, it's beautiful. There's some beautiful green as well, beautiful flowers, but the, the dry, browny, kind of dusty look to the ground, it just kind of gets me down. <laughs> I don't know what it is. <laughs> Sounds you like know. the weather I grew up with in Alabama. No, there you go. Yeah. Probably. Raining all the time. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And in, in Wales, it rains. Well, I mean, parts of Wales, it rains every single day. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. I like that. Now, I go for a walk in the rain. That's how much I like it. Do you have a lot of humidity in the UK? Not really. I mean, the worst thing about the UK, really, uh, is that we're not really prepared for any kind of weather. So our houses are very carpeted, and it's it's good for the winter, but in the summer, you just boil. We don't have air con. Nobody has air conditioning. Oh, I couldn't live in Florida without air conditioning. No, I mean, definitely. Uh, That's like a wall of heat. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Very I impressive. It's fun for like a week, but then when you live in it all the time, you get sick of it. I'm sure. No, I'm sure it, it's oppressive after a certain point. I'm sure it must be. Now, there was one thing I wanted to talk to you about, actually. And I'm not sure if I've sort of burnt up my time with you, but um, it's it's about these African uh, dinosaurs like the Mokeli and Bembe. Now, I, you know, I I totally believe that that's uh, probably a sauropod of some kind. It's interesting to me that it's aquatic, that it's primarily based in the water. And a few of the other dinosaur reports were uh, water-based as well. Do you you have any opinions on on the reasons for that? Or do you think that perhaps those kinds of creatures were were always aquatic as well? Well, you know, originally they thought the thinking back in the day was that sauropods were so big and bulky and awkward that they probably needed water to support uh-huh. themselves. And then the idea was that they lived on water plants and stayed in swampy environments. But 
the current thinking is that no, they lived in dry environments and weren't necessarily water creatures mm. or creatures that spent a lot of their time in water. But now, obviously, whatever the Mokili Mbimbi is, is a creature that's amphibious that spends a lot of time in the water. It sounds like a sauropod, but mm. there are alternatives. Some people have suggested that it's a big, long-necked monitor lizard along the lines of a Komodo dragon or Megalania. Mm. And then so other people have suggested it could be a very large soft-shell turtle. Those are possibilities, but, but if you really look at what the descriptions are, it sounds like a sauropod dinosaur. Yeah. So yeah. maybe it's possible that there were types of sauropods that did like to live in water that we just don't know about yet. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds good to me. All just, you know, um, environmental adaptation to the locale in which it finds itself. Well, one thing we got to think about, if we're talking about animals from the Mesozoic, our last firm fossil records of these animals are 65, 66 million years old. So that gives you an, a further 60 million years of evolution that could have profoundly changed these animals from what we know about in the fossil record. Uh -huh. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean it's it's special pleading, but it's special pleading. Yeah, based on reason, you know. Yeah, I, I think I think all special pleading should be based upon reason. I mean, you know, it's it's um it's a strange world, and having only been in it from a uh, in a public sense for the last two and a half years. Uh, more or less, it's it's certainly been a, a steep learning curve because, of course, I was just a fan before that. But one of the encouraging things about it, for the most part, 98.9% of all the people I've encountered in this, you know, in this genre have had a genuine interest in just finding out what the truth of the situation is. And that's, you, know, that's, you don't find that in a lot of places. That's a good community. Well, my my advice to anyone that wants to take this serious is if you're proposing that these creatures or any particular cryptid, for, for an example, is a survival of a known prehistoric type, you owe it to yourself to learn as much as you can about what they know about the actual fossil animals to prepare you for comparing the evidence you're getting now hmm. with what is known already to cross-correlate and stuff, you know? I think that's sterling. Sterling advice. It really is. And um, and how about, um, how about expeditions in the UK? Do you have any plans? Well, if the money was there, I'd already be doing it. Yeah. yeah. Maybe I should make a GoFundMe or something. Well, you... <laughs> Maybe you should. It's possible. It's possible I might have better luck than some people attempted to do that because Yes. Yes, you may you may um you may uh, have better luck. Look look, I mean you've um you spent a lot a lot of years at Lake Champlain and I think the UK would be very happy to receive you. And um, I, there are luck, some yes, wonderful I've, places for you to to visit. I've got a I've got a lot of cryptozoology friends in the UK that I've never met in person. Yeah, I mean, if you went to Loch Ness, there's already a group of people that live at the Loch who would know you and, and take you around. In fact, 
you probably uh, make the uh, the honored guest, you know. Uh, I, would, I would hope so. Yeah, most definitely. I would think so. And then uh, if I came with you, they'd be like, and who's this guy? <laughs> huh. Who's that guy you brought with you? Um, it, it's you know it's um it's the most famous area for for cryptozoology in the world. I I think you know historically it's speaking, also because it's so famous. Yeah, it's also the most scrutinized and the most I think, because it's I think double. So. It's a double edged thing, you know. And there's so many other bodies of water there to look at. So many. Even coming off of the loch. Why not go to Loch Oi or Loch Lochy? Loch Loch Marar. I'd like to check out. Where? Loch Marar. Oh, yeah, for for sure. Definitely. And the water is clear there as well. It's not murky like Loch Ness. Yeah. You should definitely check that out. That's one of the top places I'd like to go, actually, is to Loch Marar. When is your um, revised book coming out? It should be out at the end of the month. It's just still a few chapters that are kind of sticking in my craw. Uh, I've had to rewrite and add some bits to it as well. So I'm just kind of trying to get that research together whilst doing everything else um, and being daddy, you know, and that kind of stuff. It's um, it's going to be cheaper because at the moment it was very expensive the way it was first published. Uh, so I'm hoping it will be under the £10 mark, maybe 7 or £8. Have more photos inside. It will be in black and white, but that's you know, that's sure how we make it. Up when it comes out, and I'll give you a good review too. Oh, thank you, thank you. Well, I'll 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 send you a copy, and um. Well, thank you. Yeah, that way we can we can guarantee the review. <laughs> well, thank you for coming on, and uh, it's been a wonderful conversation. I really really enjoyed it, and it's got. Just to say that every time we speak, I feel like I learn so much, and I, and you get me thinking. So thank you for that. Well, thank you. It's it's a two way street. Thanks for having me on. See you soon. Yeah. Have a good night. Radio brings you The Haunted Sea with host Scott Martis.